Hey conservatives, I apologize. We have a few latency issues in this fantastic interview with Adam, but the content was so great, I wanted to get it out to you straight away. Enjoy the program. I'm still very hopeful for America, but I believe if we don't if we don't get this to get get this fixed in the next couple of years, I don't it's, I think it's going to be harder to fix. <laughs> So hello everyone, I'm Brandon Lewis, founder of the Tennessee Conservative, and I'm joined today by Adam Calabrese, who is in charge of adult education and outreach at Calvary Chapel in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And recently, Adam and his friend, Ann Roth, put together a multi-night civics class called We the Thinking People. And I was amazed that hundreds of people came night after night to learn about you know, really what makes our country so exceptional and the ideas and movements that are opposed to it continuing as we historically know it. And one of the segments that Adam presented took a deep dive into Marxism. And, you know, the term Marxism is thrown around a lot, but I'll be honest, I did not know as much about it until Adam spoke on it. And there are a few different flavors and there's some historical context that I think subscribers to the Tennessee Conservative really need to know. Uh, but before we get started with the program, please do consider subscribing to TennesseeConservativeNews.com. You can go straight to the URL or follow us on YouTube, Parlor, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, we're out there. And so we need conservatives to help us in this grassroots movement. And you can't change what's going on in Washington, D.C., although many of us would like to, but you can have an amazing impact on your state and local community. And that's really our purpose at the Tennessee Conservative. Adam, I'm so excited that you're here with us today, buddy. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. And I, I really want to appreciate uh, you, Brandon, just for a moment of what you're doing with, with starting the Tennessee Conservative. And we've talked about just the impact that that's going to make in our city, in the state, um, and just to have a reliable news source. Uh, that produces articles and facts and um, even some opinion pieces, but that are, are trying to find truth. It's, it's something that's so rare, obviously, with what we're looking at uh, in the world today. So I just appreciate what you're doing. Well, thanks, buddy. I mean, it's it's not the sexiest thing in the world to cover uh, school board meetings and county commission meetings and what's right. going on at the state legislature. But you turn around one day and you don't like where you're living and you don't like where it's going. And it's because, well, we never paid attention to what's going on state and local. Instead, we're distracted by the characters on the national stage. And while it is an interesting soap opera to watch, so much of what we live through happens, you know, at the city, county, and state level. So uh, that's our focus, but we definitely keep people up to date on the national side. So before we get started, uh, talk a little bit about your uh, background, not you know, professional background and family, just give people a little bit of a, a heads up about who you are and and, and, and uh, kind of like what you do in your free time. And then we'll talk a little bit about how you got interested in conservative politics or politics in general. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I've been living in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee for the past three years, originally from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I grew up there um, pretty much a, a kind of a tight family. Uh, all of my, all my, and this is kind of will be relevant later in our, our conversation, but all of my uh, family members are small business owners. So kind of the tra trajectory I had in life was going to be getting into commercial construction. That's the business that most of my family's in. 
Um, so started kind of going down that path, got through, you know, all the school that I needed to get through. And then, um, I actually came to faith in Christ around the age 19 and something significant happened because as I was, you know, studying and started reading the Bible, started attending church, really felt like the Lord ministered to me that even though this is what you were planning on doing, what your family has for you to do and what you're passionate about, I want to completely change that. So I started to just kind of seek and discover, well, what would that be? Is it Bible colleges and seminary? And I interestingly enough got connected with uh, a pastor in Montana that had started basically like a missions training school. And he had recently, uh, recently came out of Liberia, West Africa, and he was there during the Civil War. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, in, in most cases, when you have a missionary in a foreign country and war breaks out, all the missionaries leave. He chose to stay and changed his ministry from church planning to actually going behind enemy lines and rescuing child soldiers. So he's got stories that would blow your mind. I mean, that wow. are just radical, miraculous stories about, you know, seeing, living through a war, seeing the atrocities of war. But anyways, he comes back to the United States and kind of looks at the landscape of Christianity in America and really the next generation and says, I don't think there's a next generation that's going to be willing to go anywhere and do anything for the gospel. So I want to create a school that challenges them and trains them and equips them to be able to kind of answer that call in our life. So I went out there, didn't exactly know what I was getting myself into, but over the, over the next four years, just was traveled the world, met my wife uh, through that school. And we just, we lived everywhere, we lived abroad, lived in the Bahamas, spent time in India, Haiti, Africa, just all over the place, just in doing ministry and raising up uh, kind of this next generation of, of Christians that had a heart for the world, had a heart for the gospel primarily, but also just wanted to see change in a, on a philosophical level, but also on a social level. So I did that all the way through 2012, and then around 2013, transitioned to a Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. It was a church in Fort Lauderdale that's, that's still around. Um, from there, got the connection with Pastor Frank, who's the senior pastor at Calvary Chapel, Chattanooga. And they had an opportunity up here uh, for us to kind of fill in uh, some space. They had a couple of pastors leave. Uh, just kind of just the timing of it and really the call of God, I believe, personally, uh, just opened the door for us to come up here. So my wife and I and our four boys moved up here three years ago. Well, that is awesome. Well, you know, you got interested in history and interested in what's going on and, you know, with, with how we're governed, which is it's kind of rare. Um, that anyone walking around, I mean, if, if you surveyed the average person at, at a grocery store and asked them, okay, in the last week or so, how much thought have you given to what's going on in the Congress, what's going on in the Senate, what's going on in the State House, the County Commission, the City Council, School Board, they'd probably tell you nothing. Right. And a lot of people, you know, pay very little attention to anything except, you know, when there's a presidential race, but, you know, you've been interested in it for a long time. Um, talk to me a little bit about just how that started um yeah so my uh interest in politics has kind of been cultivated ever since i was little because i, I like i mentioned earlier i came from a family of small business owners so what happened in the government always impacted them so our, most of our conversations growing up were around politics focused on politics you know from the reagan era to you know george hw bush into the clinton the clinton you know decade basically in the 90s so just always around it, hearing it, grappling with it. Uh, not to say that I became overtly political in any way. In fact, when I came to faith in Christ, I almost had this more of a 
I don't really care about what, what's going on in politics. My only focus is the gospel and trying to reach people wherever they are. Like I didn't, it just didn't impact me. But then when you start to travel and you see other countries and you see what's happening in the conditions that people live in because of bad government policies, then you come back to the United States and you see, wow, this is a remarkably different nation. I wonder why. And then you start to do some research and not the research that you're hearing in school these days, but the actual credible research of our founding and what makes America great and American exceptionalism. It's like, okay, this, this is something that is, is worth learning, worth discussing, worth fighting for. And then I think for us, you look at 2020 and even the past couple of years under the Obama administration as well, you start to see America really start to take a turn and embrace in ways we've never seen this progressive agenda that I believe is going to be the destruction of America if we can't start thinking straight. And, you know, for us, that was, that was, it just became something that we needed to focus on. And that's why we ended up doing this. We, the thinking people class at Calvary Chapel, Chattanooga. Well, let's, let's pick up on that. And, and I'm, as far as small business, um, most small business owners are very engaged in the political process compared to your typical employed individual, because when you, have folks that work with you when you don't have your taxes withheld, when you have to pay them and feel that quarterly pain, when you're face-to-face -face with regulations and government entities on a day-to-day -day basis, and as the economy goes up and down and things happen and it affects your livelihood and then it affects whether or not you can keep people employed so they can feed their family, you just become much more sensitive to it than if you're for example, working in corporate America, one of 10,000, 5,000 employees, it's just quite different. It's, it's the difference between uh, when you're in a cruise ship and a big wave hits it, you don't feel it. When you're out there in a dinghy with about three or four of your buddies trying to make a living and you get hit by a wave, you're like, wow, that really made a difference in my business. And that is negative. And so a lot of people have never been in that small of a boat. And so they don't really realize what it's like when the government does hit you and it, and it can be quite powerful. So Marxism, it's a term that's thrown around a lot, uh, but I would say most people don't really know much about it. You know that it's bad. You know that it's affiliated with lots of regimes um, that we have, we've gone to war with that have persecuted their people. It typically ends up in a, in a mass grave and then a collapse of the economy and then, you know, a society trying to drag itself back up out of the ruins, usually to only go back to what made made them in that pile of ruins to begin with. It seems to be a cycle. But talk a little bit about uh, the birth of Marxism and how it was at odds with a lot of the Enlightenment ideas that inspired America and its founding principles. Yeah, so if you look at uh, 17th, 18th century Enlightenment thinkers, guys like John Locke, uh, guys like Adam Smith. Adam Smith brought us the idea of free markets, John Locke, natural rights, natural law separation of powers, things like that. So our founding fathers grabbed onto a lot of these ideas, were influenced by a lot of these ideas, and above all ideas were really influenced uh, through the Bible. So you have uh, these group of geniuses come together through trial, through tribulation, and through you know, a whole revolution, and they, they put together this, this document, the Constitution, that really, when you when you look into it, is is remarkable. But how they they took the best ideas of of ancient governments, the Greek idea of democracy, but then they saw the weakness of democracy and how democracies always end up failing, and said, well, what if we 
What if we, if we add some changes and we bring about um, an electoral college that isn't just a majority rule type of government, but where everyone is going to have a say through legislation? So you look at that and you say, so this is 17th, 18th century uh, thought. And then 19th, 20th century thought, it, it starts to change. And this, this hits mostly in, in Germany. Uh, by a guy by the name of Karl Marx, which is where we get the term Marxism. So Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, uh, they put together this idea of this communist manifesto. And they were really impacted by the, the first industrial revolution. And they saw through in, in, incredible growth in Europe, incredible growth in America, there was some problems as the society and culture was changing, that there were the haves and have nots. And not on, on the scale that they preached, but there was this growth and what do we do with this working class and where does everybody fit as, as money and everything kind of transitions. And they developed this whole philosophy that all of, all of society and all of ancient culture is always summed up into two groups, the haves and the have-nots. And they believed that it was a great evil and they believed that the enemy to the earth at the time was capitalism. So the, the original form of Marxism was to attack capitalism, to destroy capitalism. And you hear like the proletariat, the bourgeoisie, and it's like, so there's these two groups. You have the bourgeoisie that has the proletariat that doesn't, and we need a proletariat revolution, and we need to tear down uh, you know, existing businesses, corporations, and things like that, and disperse the wealth in to the people, but really through the government. So big, big, big government was going to be the solution. God didn't have a fit in society. Government's going to be God, and they they implemented it. So it didn't really take, even though it was philosophized about, and you know a lot of people you know, even made it into some some upper echelon talks in uh, in Europe. Not until Lenin grabbed a hold of it, and then Stalin kind of implemented it in Russia. That's really the only time that we saw it launch soon after Marx, but it, for the most part, it really failed. This original form of Marxism failed. And you see in, in communist China, you see uh, in Venezuela, you see Cuba, Vietnam. I mean, there's not a good example of where communism or Marxism really worked ever. Um, I think the, the first, it, it, when it first kind of gets rolled out into society, there might be excitement um, and maybe some things change, but then it, it always is and primarily look at Venezuela. Venezuela was uh, when it started to transition into to socialism through Marxist principles. Everyone was really excited about it. The whole world was excited about it, uh, and then it just ended up collapsing because it always collapses. And that's the big argument. People say, "Well, they didn't they didn't implement the idea right," which it, which isn't true. They always implement the idea right. It just doesn't work. It's a bad idea. Yeah. Well, your your first version, in a nutshell, of Marxism. Um, if you want to talk about cultural Marxism, or do you want to wait and talk about well, that? We can, yeah, let's, well, we can get to that in, in just a second. But one thing I think that's always interesting about socialism and communism ideas is they don't work for an individual. They don't work in a family. They don't work in a neighborhood. Uh, and if you want communism or Marxism in the United States, you don't have to have me to do it. You don't have to have me to do it. You don't have to have Adam to do it. You and five or six buddies and seven or eight families could get together and practice it which means whoever makes the most throws all their money in a pot and whoever makes the least, they throw their money in a pot and whatever happens and you can buy things and you can start a commune by yourself in the United States. Nobody will stop you, but nobody ever voluntarily does it. And I'm always suspicious of people who want to see something come to pass that they are not practicing in their community and that they're not practicing in their personal life. 
Uh, the same thing, people want tax increases. I always say, you don't need me for a tax increase. You just write a larger check to the treasury. It's the United States treasury. If you really want one, you'd already be writing checks to the treasury above and beyond your tax amount, but nobody does. And so I'm always suspicious of people when they promote ideas. And then I ask them, well, can you point to some examples in your life where you're currently doing this without compulsion at the point of a gun and they never have any? I'm like, in which case, I think you're just a hypocrite. You, you want to steal people's things <laughs> is what it sounds like to me. Um, and so it's always interesting. I find that, you know, one of the good lenses to look through of all these ideas is would it work in your community? Would it work in your family? Would it work in your neighborhood? And if the answer is no, it certainly doesn't work once the government gets a hold of it because they even mess up things that do work uh, when they touch things. So just a little bit before we get into cultural Marxism, um, a lot of Christians think Marxism and socialism are compatible with the Bible because if you look in there, uh, you know, there, there are some places where people had everything in common, of course, not, you know, compelled by the government, but they had things in common. Uh, we know that. Um, you know, people are recommended through Judaic law to, to take care of widows and orphans. And so people hinge on those uh, or look at those or, or, or look at those things. And then they go, okay, well, it, that sounds like socialism to me. It sounds like Marxism. And it sounds like it's, you know, that's what Jesus would want us to do. Why has the church kind of not taken a stronger stance on this? Why have they not helped their flocks see the the fact that those those ideologies in Christianity are incompatible and in every society where Marxism or socialism really takes hold, the church suffers. Yeah, well, I would say the the, the church of the past, you know, when we, we had the Cold War and, you know, I think if you're in your early 60s, late 50s, you probably had you probably went through some type of class in school where they talked about the dangers of communism. Then you had McCarthyism where he was looking to find, you know, anybody that had any kind of communist affiliation anywhere in government. And I think it just kind of became something that everybody got tired of. You know, I think we feel like Reagan defeated communism. So it's kind of over. Why are we still talking about it? I think we're still talking about it because it's still around, you know, it's a bad idea, but bad ideas live on. And I think this current church, I mean, even Billy Graham would, was anti-communist back in when he was preaching his, uh, you know, revivals and crusades. But I think today the church um, isn't really dealing with it. And I, I can't speak for every church. I don't know every church, but I would imagine that there's a lot of churches that um, they try to just ride in the middle as much as possible because they don't want to offend and if they say anything that someone can interpret as a political statement, that could be offensive. And if it's offensive, I'm, again, I'm speaking that some of these pastors really have good intentions. If I've offended you so you no longer come back to our church, then you might not be able to hear the gospel or be presented with the truths of scripture. And that's my priority. So I don't want to offend you. I want to win you for Christ. And then maybe we can get around talking about it later. Yeah. And I can understand that. I really can. But I believe... What we're, what we're dealing with outside of cultural Marxism and critical race theory, some of these ideas that we're being presented with on every level, that it's, it's destructive. And if, you, if people buy into it, there's no place for the gospel after it. Because when you embrace an idea like critical race theory, basically the idea of Christianity altogether 
uh, is a white man's religion, a European religion. When that, that's not even true. I mean, it, Christianity was born in the Middle East. It wasn't yeah. born around white Europeans. But it's, it's that idea that comes with it. So I believe, just like Paul in the New Testament, when he was preaching and planting churches throughout the Roman Empire, he would warn the church, hey, there's, there's a group of Judaizers that are preaching a false doctrine. Hey, there's a group of Gnostics that are preaching a false doctrine. If you guys hold on to these ideas, it's going to be hard for you to really grasp the gospel. So let me preach against those while I'm preaching for, for the gospel. And I think that's what we're trying to do as a church is just warn people that this isn't just bad ideas. These are, these are doctrinal ideas and philosophical ideas that, that if we grab onto them, we'll, we'll tear down a nation because they always have. So I don't want to rip on churches too hard and say, well, you guys are kind of just sitting, sitting on your hands, not doing anything. I think some of them are just trying to reach people and they don't want to be offensive. I think others have just bought into it and, and they're just uninformed and in some ways a little dangerous if you're going to start bringing about these ideas because these, these are bad ideas and they're hurtful ideas and they keep people oppressed. And it's basically the, 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 the basic idea of Marxism is ha the haves and the have-nots. And the have-nots need to be bitter, angry, resentful, and eventually destroy those that have. So that's the idea. And that's what we're seeing. I mean, we're seeing in America right now an unbelievable amount of tension and violence. And I mean, some people compare it to maybe the 70s when Nixon was in power, but some people go all the way back to the Civil War and say, this is, this is like something we haven't seen for a long time. And people are nervous. And it's these ideas that are leading the way. And that's why we as a church want to stand up and say, hey, these are bad ideas. Here's good ideas, um, and we need to grapple with those accordingly. So we'll talk about cultural Marxism. Well, I, actually, I, I said all that. I didn't answer your question. You said about the Bible. You know, when it says they had all things in common in Acts, the first couple chapters of Acts, I believe it's Acts 4, what you had was the apostles preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the world. And there was a revival that broke out in Jerusalem, and people were so moved by the message, by what was going on, that they were selling their homes, and they were giving money over to the apostles for them to be able to distribute and do what they needed to do with it. It says that no one had a need. And that's great. When, the, when movements like that happen, and people out of generosity and, and the, the kindness and the, you know, just the, the passion of their heart want to give of their money to help, that's different, though than the government saying, I'm taking your money and I'm distributing it. It wasn't, no one took their money. They gave their money. Communism is someone taking your money. It's completely different. So to say, well, this is a biblical idea. Jesus embraced socialism. You don't have that. I actually have here, uh, if you don't mind me reading from 2 Thessalonians. Go ahead. Chapter 3, verse 10, Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. He says, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Not those, um, now those who, who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. So you have a, a you know, all, all the, the whole biblical narrative works together. You, you can't have this idea in scripture and then say yeah communism is, is something the scripture supports it doesn't well, and even when 
Okay. You've looked at all through the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, etc., which are you know supposed to be the distillation of the greatest wisdom ever found in, in a couple of people. And they're pretty keen on getting your butt out to work and to make things happen. And a little bit of slumber, a little bit of folding the hands to rest and what will come upon you like an armed man. And, uh, and so I think the, that Protestant work ethic is in there pretty strong, and that is not very compatible with socialism, in my opinion. Well, talk about cultural Marxism, because you hear about Marxism, you hear about cultural Marxism, and then a lot of these ideas have bled into uh, movements like Black Lives Matter Incorporated, things of that nature. So talk a little bit about cultural Marxism and its current day manifestation, you know, short of actually changing the way that America's governed, though people would certainly like to see that happen. Yeah. So there's two guys. Um, one was a Hungarian guy. His name was uh, George Lukács. And then there's an, uh, an Italian gentleman named Antonio Gramsci. And Antonio Gramsci uh, was a political activist in Italy. He actually at one point worked with Mussolini, uh, but he was a, a disciple of communism. And he was actually thrown in prison by Mussolini because he was such a danger to society with his, his communist views, which I had joked earlier that if, you know, if Mussolini thinks you're a threat to society, then you probably have. <laughs> that's, that's a big statement. So in prison, he writes these, uh, these prison notebooks. And, and his whole thing while he's in prison is he's evaluating why didn't Marxism work? And he came to the realization that Marxism didn't work because Marx's approach was through economics but he realized that behind economics there's these these systems there's these institutions in place there's the school there's the family there's the church and these are the institutions that that really gird up society and while marx was just hitting this this what he called like the moat that he, he's attacking the moat well behind the moat there's the fortress and he's like what we need to do is attack the fortress and his whole idea was we got to destroy the family. We have to destroy education and uh, really even homeschooling. You know, we have to take control of everything. But number one is we have to destroy the church for, for communism uh, and, and true Marxism to take root. And Marxism needs to replace Christianity. So that was his idea. He said, Let, if we can hit the culture, we can make a radical change. So he writes these. And then you see these ideas kind of kind of uproot and, and replant themselves and the, uh, the Frankfurt School. And that same guy, George Lukacs, that disciple Gramsci, came and did a lecture at the Frankfurt School. And that, that school grasped onto these ideas and they really started, they're the ones that developed critical theory. And critical theory, not to get into all the details, but critical theory is basically just a theory that you can use to destroy anything. So you look at uh, critical theory in America today as we say, well, you know what? All of our founders were slave-owning racists and all of our founders wrote uh, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. So those are documents written by evil slaveholders. So our, our country was built on the, the emphasis of slavery. Uh, Obama said that slavery is in our DNA. So the only solution is to tear the whole thing down and build something new. We can't change it. It's, its foundation is racist, which isn't true. Only one-fourth of our founders were, were slave owners. The other three-fourths were abolitionists against slavery. 
So there's so many documents that talk about that, that that's just not true. But critical theory, the, the exercise that you, when you implement it, it's not to build anything, it's just to tear anything down. So I can tear anything down in society and just be negative and ridicule it. And enough people over a, a matter of time are gonna believe it and they're gonna, they're gonna join the effort. And that's what we see today when you see the people tearing down Theodore Roosevelt statues, Abraham Lincoln statues. I mean, I, I won't talk about, let's just, let's take the, the, the generals in the Civil War. Let's put them to the side and say, okay, well, we'll, we'll give you that. Let's just, let's give you that. Anybody that fought for the Confederate States, let's take theirs down. But let's, let's keep the others up. And then you, you have people that were actually fighting to end slavery. So it, it's, not, it's not about racism, really. It's about changing America and in, implementing a new system. So that, that's kind of what critical theory is. These guys develop it. And then the Frankfurt School disbands when Hitler comes to power. And one of the, the Herbert Marcuse actually leaves Germany, comes to California, and he is the leader of the sexual revolution in the 60s. And his whole thing is he takes Gramsci's idea of cultural Marxism and says, to weaponize it, we need to attack sexuality and we need to liberate people's sexuality. So you see the explosion of free sex in the 60s, the homosexual revolution in the 80s. This guy was the architect behind all of that. And their strategy, they said, is, and this is what uh, uh, Gramsci said, is the way that we're going to win is the long march through the institutions. So their strategy was, we got to take over government, we have to take over schools, we have to come against the church. So I think for a lot of us, when we look at what's going on, you know, we're all busy raising our families and, you know, working in our jobs. And then you look up in, in society and say, how did this happen? Like, how did we get here? And it didn't just happen overnight. This is something that's been, that has its root all the way into that Frankfurt School all the way into cultural Marxism. And it's just been a long agenda. And, you know, Angela Davis, one of the original Black Panther uh, party members uh, was trained by Marcuse and she has a position in government today. So it, it's everywhere. And you, like we, you mentioned, you know, Black Lives Matter, that their, their founders said we're trained Marxists. And you look at their, their website and they've just edited it recently to kind of clean it up because they're getting so many critiques on it. But Therefore, the overthrow of the family, their throw, the overthrow of society, which is it's all Marxist ideas. And again, it's this is why I believe it's not even really about race. What it's about is tearing the system down, and we're going to use race to do it. You know. Well, and that's it's so easy. It's so easy to do. I mean, it's uh, it's so easy to destroy something great. I mean, it probably takes a you know about twelve months to build a beautiful house. It probably takes about two minutes to burn it down. Uh, and life is like that, and it and it taps into, in my opinion, I'm no psychologist. It taps into that um, you're probably one of the the deadliest sins of all, which I think is envy. Mm -hmm. And envy is very powerful, and it's very destructive because you know, at least with the gluttony and 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 sexual immorality, you get something for it. It's at least pleasurable for a little while, but envy is just never envy you can't feed it enough and when somebody's accomplished something when somebody has built something when somebody has uh been memorialized for their accomplishments and you don't have any uh tapping into that that feeling of envy is very very easy and i think a lot of these philosophies you know the human condition has not changed and they 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 tap into that and you know critical um you know what critical theory those things are just they got to plug and play they got a place to plug in in, in the human soul and it's it's evil but it's very effective so uh, 
a lot of political philosophies have created wealth, but a lot of philosophies have, have created abject poverty. What do you know about, you know, you mentioned Venezuela. What do you know, statistically speaking, or um, just looking at the condition of the people that follow these movements, ultimately, where does it end up? Uh, what kind of historical record do we have for their success or failure? Yeah, so I don't want to butcher statistics, but I think we can just look at, let's just look at present day Venezuela. Um, I, I took a trip to Peru. Uh, we were working with a church up in the mountains in Cajabamba, which is very rural, I mean, middle of nowhere, Peru. Um, and just, we were working, uh, you know, primarily wanted to, you know, share the gospel, but then we were also doing some social service work there in the, in the community. And I was in the downtown pastor and I met a man and his family. Uh, he was selling what looked like some type of hot dog type of product, um, this tiny little cart. Uh, his wife was sitting on the curb, his kids were sitting on the curb, and you could just tell he was just in a bad way. So we got into a little bit of Spanish I knew and um, brought over a translator. We got into a conversation and he was from Venezuela. And I said, how in the world did you make it all the way to the remotest part of Peru from Venezuela? And he just began to explain that everyone is running for their lives to get out of Venezuela because, I mean, from toilet paper to basic food, food needs, there's nothing is available. And you got Venezuela, PragerU has some of the best videos on Venezuela and how socialism has destroyed that country. So I'd, I'd recommend anybody that's watching this kind of check out PragerU and, and look, just type in the search engine Venezuela. Um, how they came in and what, what Maduro's done to absolutely destroy a, a country in South America that is resource rich with the oil, the yep. gems, all the natural resources. They should be a, a shining example to the world, but they're not because they've embraced bad ideas and people are getting out of there. I mean, they're, people are, are raiding the zoos to eat the animals that are in the zoos. I mean, you're talking about a, a Lord of the Flies type of situation. And it's because these ideas don't work. But what happens is you, these ideas work as far as implementation because you get a disenfranchised group of people in a nation, a group of people in a nation that are, are struggling with life. And they say, hey, do you know why you're struggling? You're struggling because these guys at the top are evil and they're oppressing you. And here's what we want to do as your loving, benevolent government. We want to take what's theirs and give it to you because you deserve it. And for someone that's struggling and tr just trying to figure out how they're going to pay their bills, I mean, that sounds pretty good. That sounds good. Yeah, you know what? They are evil. Look at them. Look at them in their boats. Look at them in their houses. Look at them in this. And it's like these guys are evil. <clears throat> now, capitalism has its flaws, but there's been no other economic structure or philosophy that has pulled more people out of, out of poverty than capitalism. I'm not saying it doesn't have its... It's weaknesses that can, you know, can, we can talk about and we can try to construct and, and build upon. But to tear it down and to replace it with something that it does not work. Look at any nation that's embraced socialism or communism or any idea like that. <clears throat> I spent some time in Italy and I was talking to, you know, you go to Italy and you go to Venice, you go to Florence, you go to, you know, all the places and you see the, the you know, all the ancient art and everything and it, eat the food and it's just a great time. But then when you actually hang out with Italians, and you listen to what they're going through, and it's, you know, if you're in, in, between your 20s and 35, there's no work. Um, <clears throat> it's that you're taxed about 65, 70%. I mean, it's just, a, I mean, the average Italian maybe has one car, 
maybe for the family, very small. Um, the refrigerators in their homes are very, I mean, small. I mean, it's just, you, you live very meager lives and you're fighting for work because there's no work. The black market is surging and you talk to Italians and they just complain and they complain and they complain and they complain. And then you start to talk to them about socialism and then the conversation stops and they say, yeah, but we have free healthcare. We have free healthcare. I don't know why you guys and Americans don't have free healthcare. It's like, well, what'd you say you're paying in taxes? You say 60 to 65%? Yeah. You know, you're paying for that. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> yeah, you're paying a lot for that, you know? So you look at it and it's like your, your country has fallen apart because your government is so big. And in order to support that government, they got to take your money from you. There was a statistic that came out of Italy and they said that the, the forestry service on the island of Sicily, so the amount of governmental workers that, that managed the forests in Sicily were larger, the employee base was larger than the entire forestry service in Canada. Now, Canada is all forests. Sicily isn't all forests. Uh, there was a there was a barber. They found out uh, the hair cutters that were in the government that worked for the government to cut uh, government hair. You know, government hair. That's government that sounds hair. great. Sounds like something that's really needed. One hundred and fifty thousand euro a year to pay the barber. So you look at that and you're like, that that is where we're headed. When we talk about healthcare for all, when we talk about college, you know, free college for all, it has to be paid for. It's, it, nothing's free, right? It has to be paid for. And the way that it's paid for is through taxation. So we'll all pay a lot more taxes. Um, we'll, we'll all travel a little bit less. We'll all downsize in the things that we have and everything will be free. And you're like, wasn't that good though? Isn't that good? Because we're no longer being selfish and we're helping those that don't have. And I'm all for helping those in need but I'm not for helping those in need by taking from others. I think what we want to create is opportunities so that those in need can come out through those social structures. They can come out and work. And listen, for, the, so, for someone that's disabled or crippled or is completely unable, unable to work, it's just impossible. And they don't have maybe the family network to help them. Then yeah, I think there's an argument to how can the government help? But in most cases, there's no... There's no way to track when we look at how much government spending goes into fight poverty, $20 million, $20 trillion since it started. And, and all it's done is created more poverty through dependence. Right. So the, the ideas don't work at all. Well, because there's, there's just as there are rules and, and laws about gravity and thermodynamics, there are rules about human behavior and incentives. And when you begin to break down incentive structures for people to work, for people to perform, for people to make good health decisions, when you disconnect it from the market, when you plug in bureaucracies and insurance companies and everything else, the efficiency gets gets all out of whack. And even through taxation, you know, you give a, a dollar to the government to clean up a street, uh, you're going to get about 25 cents worth of litter pickup. Right. And so, you, you know, the more you tax, the more the money gets lost and uh, it just doesn't work. And that's why, you know, our founders tried, although they've done a great job of eroding it, of trying to make government as small and as local as possible. It's turned into something that's quite different, which leads me to the question about the administrative state. Mm -hmm. um, you talked about this for a while. I thought it was very interesting. Talk about the growth of the administrative state, the size of it, and how it's really 
it's really become a, an elected an unelected legislature in so many ways and it needs to be curbed yeah so at the same time that the frankfurt school was being developed and the, the ideas of cultural marxism were happening in germany we had uh an really the, the foundation of the progressive movement in the United States. Uh, John Hopkins University was founded in 1876, and they've done a lot of good uh, medically uh, in education for our country and for the world. Uh, but their school was founded on the German educational principles. And one of their two most famous students was Dr. Woodrow Wilson, President Woodrow Wilson, and John Dewey, the father of modern education. So Woodrow Wilson was, you know, governor of New Jersey. Uh, he was the president of Princeton, uh, the, the only PhD to, only, to ever serve as president. But he was more a philosopher uh, than he was really a good president. And he was the first president in U.S. history to explicitly attack the Constitution. Now, since our founding, there's been guys that have been against the Constitution or argued, you know, argued about it. But he attacked it ruthlessly. Uh, his whole thing was, you have to forget the preamble. The beginning part of it, just do away with it, that all men are created equal and unalienable rights. He says, we have to look at what the Declaration really was. And what the Declaration was, was the, that early group of Americans was, was suffering from King George. And they, they built a, a government that ended his tyranny and a government that worked for them in their time. Well, that threat, that threat of tyranny, that's no longer here. That's no longer in America. And the times that we're living in are different. And the way that they built our government with a legislative branch, a judicial branch, and an executive branch, these checks and balances, has made our government so slow to be able to respond to our modern day crisis and challenges that we really just need to, to think about a new government. And the challenges that they were talking about was you had the explosion in the Gilded Era, so the second industrial revolution. And this is where names like Rockefeller, mm -hmm. uh, names like uh, J.P. Morgan, mm -hmm. uh, Carnegie, Vanderbilt, where these, these business exploded, uh, inventions exploded. I mean, it was America led the world in, in new inventions and patents. So all of this happened. Businesses were exploding. But you also had some problems that came with that. And you had child labor. Um, you had uh, some, some uh, immigrants, new, new, new immigrants from Italy and Greece and Poland were, were, had really bad working conditions and factories. So there were problems that needed to be fixed, but their solution to fixing those was to tear apart the government. Um, their big idea was to divide the government into two basic working parts, and that would have been uh, politics, which is the will of the people, so get, kind of get to a democracy. And then the second was the administrative execution of the will of the states. <clears throat> so basically, it would be like us saying, hey, you know what? We want clean air and clean water. That's, what, that's our, the will of the people. And then the government would say, okay, well, we're going to get back to you, and we're going to tell you how we're going to implement it. So that's kind of how they wanted it to be a very quick and fast system. And I have some notes here that I just wanted to read uh, talking about this. Um, so his, his big idea was uh, that Wilson set up administrative legislatures. So that's, there's kind of three parts to that. The first part is that, that we needed to recruit and hire experts. And this would all come from the federal, the federal uh, sorry, the executive branch. So this is, uh, modern society is way too complex. We don't know how to, to fix these issues that we're facing. We need experts that specialize 
in the in these matters. Uh, and these experts need to be independent. So they need to be completely out of the political process. You know, they, they can't be aligned with a party or kind of pull for a different party. They need to be completely neutral, but they need to be experts. And then the third requirement is that they needed to be progressive, which and that definition in that day was they needed to be completely behind everything that they were promoting as, as progressive, progressive as possible. And they couldn't question it. They just needed to move forward with it. So think, of, think about it. So you have a modern day example is the, um, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, which was started in 1955. The head of that is Fauci, right? So he's an expert and we're going through a COVID crisis and we don't know, no one knows how to handle it. So we're all looking to Fauci to handle it. Well, Fauci's the expert and he has served uh, under six presidents. He's been around forever, but no, no one's elected him. He's, he's, he's a hired position. He's a government employee and it's a hired position. It's a non-elected position. And that's not how the founding fathers wanted society to be set up. Um, we have 9 million government employees right now. Wow. 9 million government employees right now. You have all of these agencies, these expert agencies that have been set up. So you look at the FDA, you look at OSHA, you look at the IRS. I mean, any, any three letters and you kind of put them together, there's probably a government, government agency. None of them are elected. They're all employed. And a lot of these positions are guys that they never leave office. And they're unaccountable to the people. Exactly. Where Congress is really the is the only branch of government that's supposed to legislate and create laws. They've actually taken their their power and given it over to the experts to create law. So, if you guys remember uh, when Nancy Pelosi uh, talking about Obamacare, and she's like, "Listen, we just got to pass this so we can see what's in what's in it," and everyone kind of laughed and like, "How would you say that?" Why would you say that? You sound like such a fool. You, you haven't even read it and you want to pass it. And she wasn't a fool. What she's saying is we need to pass it so we can get it to the experts. So the experts can then tell us how it's going to impact our lives. And that is the, the modern progressive state. So when you hear <clears throat> progressivism, you talk, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, AOC, when they say this is going to be Biden, if, if Biden ends up winning this election, Biden's administration is going to be the most progressive administration America has ever seen. That's what they claim. And what that means is government's just going to get huge. It's going to get huge. And we're going to fill it with experts and um, we're going to have to pay for those experts and we're going to have to pay for that big government by paying more taxes. Yeah, well, I've uh, worked up in D.C. and I have met these experts and I've hung around with them. And I would not trust most of them to run a Dairy Queen in Poughkeepsie as a shift manager if it came to practically solving a problem. Uh, practical problem solving skills are, are something that I rarely find in government employees. I'll just be honest. Uh, that's one reason that I was a government employee for all of three months before I had to leave because you couldn't get anything done. You, can't, you cannot get anything done uh, for the people in the administrative state um, the same, if you try to save the same, same, solve the same problem, provide the same service in private business, you could probably do it four months earlier. You could do it for a, a fourth to a fifth of the cost and government just tends to, to take everything in the administrative state, take services and products and they ruin them and they, they deliver poor results, slow and expensive. And usually they always say you, you can have it cheap. Uh, you can have it, you can have it fast. You can have it good. Pick two. 
and the government just gives it to you expensive and slow and bad. And I'm like, I thought that I didn't know those were choices, but those are the choices with the administrative state. Uh, one of the last thing I do want to talk about, because I want to be kind with your time, is the fourth stage approach to dismantling a, a civilization and the demoralized mind. I'd like to kind of wrap up with that. And because we've talked about a few things here as we've gone, um, talk about the demoralized mind, talk about that four stage, uh, you know, four stages of tearing down a civilization, because I think if people know about that and they can see it, it, it could help them guard against it. So speak to that. Yeah, so in, uh, in 1984, a uh, former KGB operative was interviewed. Uh, his name was Yuri Bezmenov. <clears throat> and his, his responsibility was to bring uh, basic revolutionary tactics to India, uh, to Pakistan. <clears throat> and he, um, you know, through propaganda, was looking to create communist revolutions in those countries. And he said they had a, a basically a four-pronged strategy turn and flip a society to embrace communism. And the first one he said is demoralization. And he said that was about a 20, that takes about a 20 year process. <clears throat> Excuse me. The second was destabilization. The third was crisis. And then the fourth was normalization. So he said in the first, that first step, the demoralization, that 20 year process, that's where they completely erode the mind. So when you look at what uh, Mark Hughes did in the sixties, where free love, um, you know, the sexual revolution, you know, drugs, the homosexual revolution that came in the 80s, the breakdown of the family, where there's no absolute truths anymore, there's no morality anymore, the family structure falls apart. When you, when you have a society that's been demoralized, which again, he said, takes a 20-year process, is that that no longer able to discern truth, no matter if you put the facts and data in front of them. So I would say, again, I know this is probably a scandalous topic, but you look at COVID <clears throat> and, you know, COVID, we're, we're looking at the facts, we're looking at the data. And we were told that we needed to shut down our economy. We needed to shut down our country. And why? Why what was the first reason they told us? Our hospitals, we do not have the capacity. This mm -hmm. is going to hit us like a ton of bricks. And so, I mean, we're, gonna, we're looking at 2 million plus deaths. We do not have enough hospital beds. We don't. We don't have enough respirators. We are in trouble. So here's what we, here's what we need to do to alleviate the hospitals in America. We're all going to stay home. We're all going to shut our businesses so that we can kind of have this trickle effect where little by little, you know, we can, we can hit, hit this problem with having enough beds. Well, then you see in Houston, they built, we started building they set up a, a tent camp a base camp you have in houston like i said donald trump sent military ships off the coasts of california new york and so we got all of our bed okay we got need more beds and then we, everyone wants to go building respirators so we have more respirators than we need and what happened some of those hospitals we built we never used it, it didn't happen so then you're like, okay, well, what is it now? And then instead of, instead of talking about beds, now we're talking about cases, cases. There's this many cases, cases arising, cases arising. But then you look at the deaths and you just have all of this data that's been cooked. And I'm not saying it's not real, it is real. And I, I know that there are people that are highly susceptible. If you're a certain age, if you struggle with obesity, you have diabetes. I mean, there's certain factors that make you susceptible, but it is not the threat that we were told and to have a mask mandate 
And then for people, if I'm not wearing a mask to, to give me the middle finger or to scream at me saying that I'm an unloving person, that, that is just, I feel like, the product of a demoralized mind that is unable to look at the data and say, you know what, something doesn't seem right here. It seems like there's a crisis, uh, a, real, a real medical crisis that has now been politicized as a weapon to tear apart the country and to tear apart the political leader that we don't want in there. So you look at that and it just, it just seems real sketchy. And again, I don't think we're able to look at data as Americans any more freely think and make decisions. We're just kind of scared sheep that just, okay, what's the government telling us to do? Okay, they're telling us we all gotta wear masks. Okay, we all gotta wear masks. Okay, I pull up to Starbucks and I got a mask on and they have a mask on and they're gonna put a bucket out the window and I'm gonna put my debit card in the bucket. And then they're going to grab their hand and grab my debit card. And it's like, we're touching the same card. You just put a bucket in between us. Like, what is this really doing? This isn't doing anything. <laughs> yeah. So you look at this and you just looking at these and saying, what's the best way to handle this? Well, I think the best way to handle this is to say, here's the data. The data says this. If you're in this age group or you have these pre-existing conditions, you're at risk and we want to do everything we can to help you. But we're not going to shut down. We're not going to shut down the economy. Let's just everyone be safe, but in your freedom and in your logic as American people and free thinkers, you guys are probably the best ones to, to, to self-regulate how to handle this crisis. But that's not the age we're living in. The age we're living in is the government is going to tell us what to do. The government is going to control. The government is going to shut down our churches. It's going to shut down everything, but then keep other things open. And you just see, I see the effects of demoralization because we can no longer think as a people. Well, I agree. I'm right there with you. And all of this should not have completely disrupted and upended American life. And it, it should not have been. It is, I think that if we survive, if the human race survives, that's very, pretty, pretty uh, dismal view. But I think as historians look back at this, and of course, you know, the victors get to write the history books, I think people are going to look at this as, as one of the biggest cases of global mass hysteria that is ever braced. And I'm amazed that more political leaders don't have the backbone uh, and church leaders and cultural leaders to, to simply look at the facts and go, it's, it's, this, is, this is not what we're being told. I mean, I can plainly see it. And there's a group of um, the resistance, it's like Star Wars or something, people that are like, this is just crazy that all the people have law or as most old people that are in their seventies or eighties and sixties tell me the people have lost their damn minds. And the old folks are like, even them, but especially people that have actually lived through hard times. They're like, this, I'm, I'm just going to live, I'm just going to live my life. Um, so I'm hoping that people can, can get back to that. So last thing I want to talk about and, and wrap up with this, I guess, is how can people make a difference? What organizations, what efforts on a state and local level, what can people do now that we kind of, we, we've talked about the threat, we've talked about bad ideas lead to bad places, uh, we've talked about some of the constructs and frameworks that allow us to identify, know where these ideas come from, be able to recognize it. But when you see these types of changes happening, when you see even in your own state, I mean, our own governor, Many of our county officials, many of our elected officials, like they have, they've completely ran over individual rights, religious freedom, and, and the legislative process to push many of these remedies on us uh, during a crisis like this. 
um, which is, I think, part and parcel of a lot of these ideas taking root in American culture. What is a person to do? How is a person to get involved and make a difference? Because it, it will take that type of individual and collective effort to to get us back, hopefully, to some kind of normalcy of thought that's more in keeping with the American tradition. Yeah, so I would say um, one of the primary things we can do is, is to get educated. Um, there are a lot of, um, and again, I, I, I'm a Christian, right? So, um, but I'm, I'm talking to anybody that if you're a Christian or not, you know, <laughs> I'll, re I'll reference it again. Dennis Prager has a video, you know, Dennis Prager uh, is Jewish and he kind of leads a conservative think tank and he's got so many podcasts and little videos, educational videos, but he has this whole appeal to liberals. And he says to liberals that are stuck in a left-wing progressive party, he says, liberals, you're not voting your conscience. You're not voting your, your what you believe. He's like, you're, if you really think about it, you're more aligned with conservatives than you are with the left-wing party. Uh, is, is, is resegregating our nation, where a liberal would, would have desegregated our nation. The left wing wants to see everything segregated. So he's like, so I, I think just getting educated, um, and I, you could do that through Prager University. Hillsdale College has incredible free courses on, on the Constitution, on the founding of our nation, on progressivism uh, that you can go. You can get lost in these classes. And, and some people may not have the time, but I think if you look out at what's going on, you need to find the time to get educated. And then start having conversations with people in your circles, people that you work with, people, you know, people in your family. I'm sure we all have people in our family that, that see things differently. And start to have these conversations to hopefully wake up the mind. And really, we're appealing to people for freedom. We want to live in a free society. We want to live in a society where, uh, again, there's, there's st stability and there's structure and order. But we're able, as, as free-thinking people, to make decisions for our families that are the best decisions. I agree. So I would say get educated. You know, I would always say vote, but with everything that's going on with voting, it's, you know, man, it's hard, but uh, you vote. I mean, you look at what's, if you live in, if you, during this pandemic, if you lived in New York or you lived in California or you lived in, let's say, a conservative state like, you know, let's say Tennessee or Mississippi, your experience through COVID is drastically different than those other states because they have progressive governors that have become tyrants. I mean, look at what Whitmer has done in Michigan, where no one's, you, you can have, you might have a house and then a vacation home, but you can't go to your vacation home and you can't, you can drive, a, you can, you can be on a kayak on a boat, but you can't be on a motorized boat. And it's like, what, what are we doing here? It's like, you can't paint, you can't shop for paint, paint your house. And all of these crazy rules that, that they, that they, uh, they passed in Michigan. And it's like, you got to vote. But I think we've seen more than ever that maybe we always used to think, well, matters, but your local government matters and that can really change how you live. So I think vote, vote for freedom, look for people that are, are, are standing for, I'm going to say conservative values because conservative values keep us free. Uh, vote, get educated. Um, you know, for me as a believer, uh, my personal view is that without the gospel and our true revival, that none of this is going to matter anyways, because you look back at the founding fathers and, and it was their faith that that freed humanity. Humanity was never free. I mean, you go through all the histories. I mean, there was always slavery. There was always um, just these these societies that really crippled uh, the average person. And it wasn't until our founders got together with scripture 
and some of these new ideas and say, we're going to build a society that's free because God's made us free. And that was the whole thing about natural rights and natural law. So I, you have to get educated and you have to talk about it. You have to have the uncomfortable conversations. You know, if you and you were scared to tell anybody and you're one of those, the silent majority, I think that needs to change. I think it needs to change. I think you need to say, Hey, here's why. And you don't need to be, you don't need to be a jerk. You don't need to be uh, offensive. You don't need to get angry and emotional. I think you just need to be, be calm. And I think if you can speak in kindness and love, you can still speak truth. And I think it'll go a long way, you know, and ask questions, ask questions. If someone says, you know, you talk to someone that's progressive, I'll say, well, let me ask, let me ask you a couple of questions. Well, why do you think this? Or why do you think that? So what about this situation? Eventually they're going to, they're going to run out of uh, good answers because they don't have good ideas, you know, and that could be the open door for you to be, to bring in truth and to bring in some ideas that I think can bring about change. I'm still very hopeful for America, but I believe if we don't, if we don't get this to get, get this fixed in the next couple of years, I don't, it's, I think it's going to be harder to fix. I agree. And my one plea I'd have for folks that are watching is, you know, there are more people that probably tune in to any random uh, podcast that is widely available and popular than those who keep up with the city council meetings or those who keep up with county commission meetings or those who know what's going on in the legislature. So if, if things are going on in your community or they sound like they're going to happen in your community and if you're not happy with it, uh, you need to call your representatives and you need to make make noise and you need to consistently communicate with them. I think one practical thing I'd recommend everybody watching this do is take out an Excel sheet or a Word document or a good old pen and a piece of paper and figure out who the five or six people are that directly report to you at the city, the county, and the state level. And every time you see something rolling down the pike, shoot them an email, call them, make them have to discreetly handle that communication. And after a while, they don't want trouble and they'll go along to get along. And But if you let them know uh, that you think that this is in conflict, especially if we're a conservative state with what conservatives believe, I think a lot of what the governor and the legislature and the Senate have allowed to happen um, have really reflected poorly on their conservative credentials during this COVID crisis, uh, along with our county and some of our city leaders. And so you got to let you got to let them know and you got to keep up and you got to go vote and you got to figure out who in the world supporting what. Uh, because that's the only way that we're going to keep our county and our state and our um, and our country moving in a positive direction. So I've enjoyed having you here, Adam. Thank you for taking the time to share what you know. You know a lot, and uh, I certainly know a lot more after listening to you, um, both at We the Thinking People and today. So I appreciate you being here, buddy. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing what you're doing. All right, guys. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this program. Uh, if you have, Please do subscribe to TennesseeConservativeNews.com. You can follow us at YouTube, Facebook, Parlor, Twitter, and places where conservatives have yet to be censored. I'm Brandon Lewis, founder of the Tennessee Conservative, signing off.